Here we are. Robcast, episode 312. And this one is called That Which Is Set Before You. And as a connoisseur of titles, you know I love a good title. That title is about as bulky and cumbersome as it gets. That which is set before you. Although once I had it, I couldn't let it go. You know what I mean? It just worked its way in there. It's worked its way into my heart. Yeah, that's the thing about titles. If you come across a title and it is, it's awkward and just, it's got like, uh, it's just sort of out of, it, it can't figure out what music it's dancing to, but you love it, then you just got to double down on it. You know, Robcast 312, that which is set before you, and then say it like it's just the most natural title ever, right? That once you're committed, just go the whole way. That which is set before you. <laughs> uh, so my new Everything is Spiritual tour starts next week. Uh, Portland and then Seattle are the first two cities. But I've been trying it out in backyards. And a couple nights ago, I was in Antelope Valley. Have you ever been to Antelope Valley? Whew. It is. I mean, the stars are out, little breeze, some desert vibes. Uh, a whole bunch of people came from all over and gathered in the backyard of my glorious friends, Tim and Wendy. You would seriously love these people. So they just put the word out and open up their backyard, and pe people brought their own chairs. And I'm telling you, being back together with people, trying out this new tour, whew, oh, Man, so moving for me. I didn't drive home. I floated home. So uh, next week, Port and Seattle, then Detroit, Chicago, Columbus, New York, Washington, D.C. I'm coming your way. San Francisco, Nashville, Atlanta, and Denver. Those are the U.S. cities for this fall. Just That's this fall's leg. And then early next year, Oklahoma City, Austin, Dallas, um, that's sort of first leg, but then tickets just went up and it just got announced European and UK tour dates for next summer. So next summer, uh, Amsterdam is June, the last day of June, then June 30, then Oslo, Stockholm, Copenhagen, Berlin, by the way, all my wonderful German friends who keep asking, when are you coming to Germany? Uh, let me look right here. The 12th of July, 2022, I'm coming to Berlin. And then Bristol, Glasgow, all you Scottish peoples, prepare thyselves. And then Belfast, Dublin, Brighton, London, and that leg of the tour will wrap up at the end of July in Manchester. So uh, I'm going to come see you. And uh, just give me enough time, and I'll, uh, I'll get to you. <laughs> uh, all that info, of course, is at my site. So, that which is set before you. I want to show you a line. It's a line in the New Testament from a letter. It's a line within a larger line, within a paragraph, within a much larger flow. Um, the writer in this letter is making all sorts of giant points, but the writer says something. It's just a fragment of a line, uh, but I think you'll see it raises profound questions about how 
we think about this experience that we are. I was going to say this experience we're all having, but it's, we are. We are the experience. Now, uh, scholars don't really know. It's it's um, in a letter. It's called Hebrews. Letter. It's a letter called Hebrews. But we don't. Scholars are divided. They don't really know who wrote this letter. So so I would just say whoever it was, she was brilliant. But she says this. Uh, she's talking about Jesus, and she says, "Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross." Who, let's do that again. Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So the writer takes the suffering of the cross, and you've seen crosses all your life. They're all around us. This, the cross as an icon goes way beyond any one religion. It's an earring. It's graffiti. It's an emblem. It's a billboard. I mean, the, the cross is like, it's like, part of the furniture of the world. Do you know what I mean? So, so we've seen, you know, Jesus died on the cross. The, the writer takes the cross and places the suffering of the cross within something larger than the suffering. Jesus is crucified, he's beaten, mocked, tortured, he's humiliated, he's executed as an enemy of the state, and yet the writer places all of that essentially the worst that can happen to a human, the, the writer places that, almost like the cross happens on the way to something. It's as if the cross and all of that being beaten and tortured and executed, that's something that gets endured. It's, it's passed through along the way to the thing that is the thing. See how uh, see the sort of provocative questions this raises? Are the momentary joys, pleasures, the desires that get f- fulfilled? Are those moments? Well, see, even use that. What's another word we could use? Happy. Are those moments of happiness? Are they just something that come and go, fleeting, temporary moments? within this trial to be endured called life? Or are trials, suffering, agony, difficulties, that which happens within something, some larger joy we call life? Yeah, how do you see your life. So there's a story here. Let's back up, because the the writer is drawing upon a story about a first-century traveling subversive rabbi teacher, mystic revolutionary who's been described in thousands of ways, who is ultimately executed by the Roman Empire. He didn't have to die, obviously. He was going after something, following something, giving himself to it, and the cross is something that he endured on the way. So so all let's just clear up that just for a second. All of the like he had to die, why did he die? No, he was killed. He was killed. He was executed as an enemy of the state. That's what empires do and did at that time thousands of years ago. You execute the ones who resist your all-encompassing totalizing power. But throughout the story, Jesus keeps telling his students he's headed to Jerusalem. 
Why? Because Jerusalem was the center. It was the heartbeat of the religious, military, industrial, economic complex of his people. Everything in his first century world was stacked on top of each other. Religion, military might, economics, what you would call government, uh, all of it was like one giant, we might say, hairball. Okay, so he keeps telling his followers he's headed to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is the center of the whole thing, and in the center of Jerusalem was the temple, and his people believed their God dwelled in this temple, and the temple had a treasury, and people would give money to the treasury to support the priests who ran the temple, and then the idea was the rest of the money was given to those who needed it. Namely, you had lots of good, hardworking people who were making, having a harder and harder time holding on to the family lands that they had inherited. So you had debt was a massive issue. You had this massive widening gap between the rich and the poor. You had these corporate landowners who were buying up these family plots of land, and people who had been handed a piece of land, a parcel of land for generations from their family members, in many cases were losing their family lands. So a whole way of life was being threatened. And the idea behind the temple treasury, going way back in the life of Jesus' people, was that there was a way, a safety net, for people who were in trouble. And so people would give money to the temple treasury, and then it would be distributed to those who needed it, who were in danger, who needed food, who were in danger of losing family lands, who... who who were in trouble. Uh, by the way, central to Jesus' world was an understanding that you have to have a safety net, or people will start falling through the cracks, and then gradually the whole thing will begin to collapse. Now, what happened in his day was the temple was controlled, and the temple treasury was controlled by a small group of elite leaders who were profoundly corrupt, and they were taking money from the temple treasury to make themselves wealthier and not spreading it around and distributing it to the most vulnerable. So a friend of mine was telling me that on the south side of the city of Jerusalem, where uh, the families lived who controlled the temple treasury, they have excavated bottles of wine that would be the equivalent of a $5,000 bottle of wine uh, like massive, massive wealth. So, uh, oh, by the way, side note, tangent, although there are no tangents, right? That sh I should do a whole episode on that. There are no tangents, ultimately. But, but like when Jesus turns over, you know, the, the, the story of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple, it was actually commanded uh, that there would be tables in the temple because there had to be a way for people who were visiting from other lands to exchange their currency for the currency of the temple so they could give money to the treasury. So um, there had to be an exchange system. So when Jesus turns over the tables, he has no problem with money changers in the temple. He has a problem with how corrupt the system has been. So it's like guerrilla theater. It's like performance art. It's, it's not the tables. It's the fact that the tables have become a symbol of the corrupt system. And actually, some people believe 
that when Jesus turns over the tables, that's actually what gets him killed. That act is an open, public defiance of the small, elite group of wealthy people who controlled the temple and the temple treasury, and that to do that in public, you were just asking. He's provoking them by saying, this whole thing is corrupt, you have forgotten to protect the vulnerable, you are making yourselves wealthier with money that was intended to care for everybody, and therefore this, this system needs to come down, because it is no longer... Uh, this institution has collapsed in on itself, and it's no longer doing what it originally existed to do. Uh, you see how somewhat, how timeless so much of this is? <laughs> see how the same issues? That's the, uh, the, the patterns of history, how they repeat in, in so many fascinating ways. So in some ways, his confrontation in the temple area is the culmination of what he's been doing the whole time, because he's raising up students, he's teaching people, he's healing, he's announcing a new order of things, he's calling people to live in a new way, and he keeps saying, let's go to the next town, let's go to the next town, because I've come to head to Jerusalem. He's announcing, he, he calls it a kingdom of God, so a, a new way of ordering things, which is really in many ways an old way of ordering things, but he's doing something. He's set something before him, a joy. Yeah, yeah, he's got something he's doing. And he keeps saying, yeah, we're headed, I'm, let's go to the next town. We're, I'm headed to ultimately here where we're going. We're going to Jerusalem for a confrontation with the center. He's going all the way in to the center. Yeah, yeah, and, and he's enduring whatever comes with it. All of the difficulties that come his way come his way because of what has been set before him. The joy, the, the joy, essentially, and there's lots of joys in the joy and joys, joy in the stories about him. Yeah. Yeah, think about the people you most admire. Think about the people you that, that there's elements when you're around them that you think, yeah. I'd like some of that. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're people who have set themselves towards something. They've set something before themselves. That's generally how, especially the people who you most admire, who have the integrity, the resilience, the they live with a certain vitality. And when they say like, oh, I don't know, I'm just sort of, you know, going along. Yeah, just figuring it out. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, they are just figuring it out, but now nah, they set something before them. Maybe it was figuring it out, but their curiosity alone, curiosity is a thing you can set before you. You're going to follow wherever it takes you. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can build your whole life just around that. So let's back up here and get a sense of what the writer, like what builds up to the for the joy set before him. So the, the writer the chapter before this talks about all these people who lived by faith. That's the way she says it, by faith. It's, it's as if these people glimpsed something. Moses, Jacob, all these people, uh, Rahab, these people who glimpsed something and went after it and then arranged their life around it. 
And by the way, at the end of chapter 11, she says, they were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. So essentially, they had something set before them that they were headed towards, but it didn't mean that they got everything they wanted. It didn't mean they actually arrived there. It was much more about the experience of living by something larger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what if no one reads your book? What if no one comes to the thing that you created? What if no one cares? Yeah, that might happen. That might happen. Yeah, I, I know about that. <laughs> yeah, what, what if you give your best to the world and it is rejected? Or what if you're despised? Or what if people think you're part of the problem? Yeah, that can happen. That can happen. You set something before yourself, and you pursue it, and you don't get the results you wanted. Yeah, that can happen. But you are alive the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, you are alive the whole time. He, 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 uh, he endures the cross for the joy set before him, but he dies, like abandoned, alone, on the cross, experiencing profound pain and alienation. So, yeah, it's, it, the, the writer's not talking about guarantees. The writer's not talking about promises. That, by the way, this is why when anybody makes you promises and guarantees, some, some, your skin crawls, especially, oh, good God, anybody in like sort of spiritual teacher, motivational speaker realm, Right? Like, buy this book and you'll get these seven... This is why, because you've lived long enough to know very few guarantees, although you can set joy before you. You know, you, you can do that. So the writer says... So the writer talks about all... writes about all these people who lived by the glimpse, by faith. Then the writer says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, which, I mean, that line right there, a great cloud of witnesses. You could say a great crowd of witnesses. Yeah. It's like, wait, do you think you're alone? Those of you, uh, you have some something you're trying to build, something you're you're doing, something that has captured you, something that has captivated you, and you have bits and pieces of it. You have enough to take the next step. You've duct taped together a couple of different pieces of things you've seen in different places. You haven't seen anybody trying to do it how you're doing it, and yet, how else would you do it? So it feels like you're just stumbling along, and yet you can't imagine some other way. Yeah, 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 by faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And since you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, yeah, this is how it works. This is how it works. Yeah, you're not alone. And actually, in the moments when we most feel the loneliness, like, how come I don't fit in? How come I look around and I can't find anybody who seems to be doing what I'm doing? It's like the writer says, in those moments, when you most feel like you're just sort of fumbling in the dark, with just enough illumination to take the next step, you're actually surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, people who experienced the same thing. 
Yeah. 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 This is why it's important. A lineage, a tradition. This can be incredibly important in a craft, in a trade, in some particular kind of work, in a spiritual lineage, in a practice of some sort, in a discipline, in a meditation uh, heritage. All uh, It can be incredibly important. It is incredibly important and, and can be just massively helpful to be doing what you're doing within some sort of of tradition that's unfolded across the ages because you just know you're not alone. Yeah, you're surrounded by this great cloud of witness. And then the and then writer says, and then you throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Or as I like to say, I found something more compelling. <laughs> yeah, so think about all the things that get in the way, the habits, addictions, patterns, behaviors, all the stuff that you're like, why do I keep doing this? Uh, the, the the way that you break free is you find something you love more. That's how it works. Uh, I know that sounds incredibly simple. Uh, the working out of that can be incredibly complex, but that's... that's otherwise, otherwise, it's just you versus whatever it is. And it's easy to feel like two steps forward, nine steps back, right? You have to muster up the willpower again to say no to that thing that's so tempting... Yeah, and oh God, it's just exhausting. So, so most people were taught, whatever you do, sort of tamp down your desires. You know, like kind of put those over on the shelf. Don't let those get to you. Um, but I would say amp them up. What do you really want? Find something you want so much that other things honestly sound a little boring and trivial. That's how you throw off everything that hinders, everything that so easily entangles. You don't deny your desire. You double down on it. You amp it up. Uh, not little, like the little sort of trivial, right, sort of drugstore desires, but the big desires, like the thing you really, really want to do. You just keep going until you find the base note desire, what kind of life you want to live what you want to learn how to do, who you want to help, how you want to give a gift. Yeah, that's how you throw off everything. It, it just becomes not even that interesting. Oh, and then the writer says, and then you run with perseverance the race before us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That's some old school New Testament Bible reading right there. And if you're twitching a little bit about this, because obviously the, the Bible, Jesus, all that can get loaded with all sorts of stuff for people, just uh, find yourself, tr try and sink into the humanity of it. Run with perseverance. Well, okay, how do people persevere? How do people endure? How do you become resilient? You become resilient when you have placed something before you and you're following it. Something has captured you. You found something you love. It's interesting to me how many questions people have about ego, about futility, about making it all about this. So many questions can be answered with love. What do you love? What do you love? What, what do you 
What is it that when you do it, you're filled with love for life, for other people, for the moment? Yeah, that's what helps me. Yeah, when I when I take a deep breath and I center myself in who and what I love, a whole world of things fades away. Yeah, that's where... That's why it's, uh, if you notice how people who are the most courageous don't use the word courage, the people who are most brave don't use the word brave, the people who persevere and who have great resilience generally don't use those sorts of words. They often just talk about, well, then I just did the next thing. Yeah. Well, I just, I just followed it. It's almost like they're like, wait, what are you asking about that? I just, yeah, yeah. It's almost effortless. By the way, we should do a whole Robcast on that. I should make a note of that. Hold on. Let me make a note of that. Um. Yeah, we should talk about that in detail at some point. It's probably because they something got set before them, some sort of joy or love, some pleasure or desire, and so they went after it. Yeah, they're just they're following the thing. What else would you do? What else would you do? That's why they look at you with that certain, like, why are you asking me those sorts of questions? It's because it, it, it got actually quite clear. That's what happens. It gets quite clear. Oh, and then... After all that, the writer says, and then Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. <laughs> now, that's some first century language right there. That's some imperial language of thrones and dominion and authority and power. But, but he, here's how you could read it in 2021. He sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's coded language in the first century for authority. He has joy set before him. And so everything that comes his way, he endures because of the joy. And so when he gets through it, yeah, he has persevered. He has endured. He did it. Yeah, he, he sits down almost like the work has been done. He sits in a place of authority. Why is that so interesting? Because of how many people use the phrase imposter syndrome. Or they say they feel like a fraud. Maybe this is you. Or you try to do something in the world and you have a, who am I? Who am I to do this? This is why that which is set before you is so massively important. Is when there's a joy that's set before you and you're following it and you're enduring whatever comes your way because your eyes are fixed on the thing that you're doing, then you lose the imposter syndrome. Your questions of authority go away. This is literally what happens. Quite, who am I to do that? Who are you not to do this? This is what you're doing. It becomes a lived experience and not a speculation or an endless critique. Uh, by the way, this is why the internet is so incredibly lethal for people actually doing things. Because the internet requires zero endurance. Nobody, you can just spout off endlessly without actually setting something before yourself and then following it and then enduring everything that comes your way, which, which what it does is your questions of authority. Who am I? Imposter? Am I a fraud? Those questions go away when you're simply doing the thing that has been set before you. So what happens then when a whole world of people start commenting 
and critiquing each other without anybody enduring anything because there is no joy set before, well, you can see why that just ends up a giant dumpster fire. This is why it always comes back to an incarnation, flesh and blood, to you in this life giving yourself to something. And then the things that come your way, well, I mean, they're, they're painful, maybe they're a big deal, and yet you're on your way somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I was told at a young age by an authority figure that life is work. And then once in a while, you get a little break. I'll, I, I, that, that imprinted on me so powerfully uh, that basically the whole thing is just a trial to be endured. And I also noticed with this particular authority figure that, they, that if somebody appeared to be enjoying themselves, this person had issues with them. Uh, this person had like a... The same person who told me that also had like a... If somebody seemed like their life was too easy, it was like they were getting away with something, and this person was very bitter towards them. It would critique them and criticize them. Yeah, they, they had taken this idea that the whole thing is a trial to be endured, that that's all it is. That if it appeared as though somebody actually had some joy set before them, was actually just doing something because they wanted to, because this was the thing that lit them up. This was the thing that, this was where their desire took them. This was where the pleasure was. Uh, yeah, they, yeah I, I watched this person on numerous occasions just be so suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. I meet lots of people who have a deep suspicion of joy and happiness and pleasure. Yeah. Who who, if it appears as though somebody is just doing their thing, just floating down the river, they get quite worked up. Yeah, a deep suspicion about the good. Often it gets presented as intelligence or philosophical wisdom or sort of a world-weary knowledge of how things really work. But when you encounter someone who has a strong axe to grind about joy or pleasure or desire, there's generally always, always, always a personal story involving personal pain going on there. You you have entered into a story. There's a story there. For sure. Yeah. Obviously, people guaranteeing things. Come to my thing, and I'll... Sh then you'll be happy. Oh, gross. 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 But this writer here, this writer in Hebrews, frames the entire Jesus story in terms of a joy set before him. Yeah, yeah. Does not present life as a brutal trial that you just have to get through to earn enough points and look at, and you can just prove to everybody how hard it's been for you. No, it presents it as joy. Frames the whole thing happening within joy. Yeah, so you want to have a kid, you want to start a business, you want to try something new, you want to go study something, you want to do a particular kind of work, you want to give a certain kind of gift, you want to help people do it by in some specific way, you want to ease some burden, you want to serve. Yeah, go, yeah, good. Yeah, good. There will be enough difficulty with that 
you set, you set that joy before you and go after it, there will be plenty of difficulty. When I meet somebody who any talk of the joy or pleasure or desire, and they're like, yeah, well, you know, life can be hard, really. Yeah, thanks there, Kyle. <laughs> Appreciate it, Joan. Yeah, like, like any of us are fuzzy on that. <laughs> the issue is what's it happening within? I mean, I, I mean, I, I stumbled into work that I love, something I could give my life to when I was 21. God, that's young. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I was very resolute and committed at 21. Literally, if you would have met me at 21, I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was like locked in on that thing. And yet, what are we at? 30 years of doing this, doing what I love. And yet, <laughs> the, the difficulty, challenge, uh, pain, disorientation, uh, yeah, yeah. Just doing something you love will bring enough challenge. There will be enough challenge. There will be enough to endure. It's going to have enough difficulty. You might as well be doing something that brings you, you joy. You might as well. Yeah. Perhaps that's one of the underbelly gifts of this strange, surreal experience we've been in for the past year and a half. I've certainly noticed a number of people who are like, wait a second, this whole thing is a little wobbly. It's, a, it's profoundly unstable. It can all be disrupted in the blink of an eye. It's March, and all of a sudden the NBA has canceled, and wait, people are having to leave school? Wait, what is going to... We're locked down? What, we're wearing masks? What? Like, this whole thing is way more fragile and malleable and flimsy. So the number of people I've noticed who've been through this who are like, wait, I might as well be doing something I love. Yeah, might as well. Might as well. That which is set before you. I mean, think about those people who make and do the things that inspire you. Somewhere in there is something they set that got set before them. They set before them that they love and it brings them joy. Yeah. And you benefited from that. Yeah. Yeah. Listen carefully for it. Listen when people tell you of the difficulty of a thing. Listen for whether it's just the difficulty. That's it. It's not happening with anything larger. Or listen for the joy that has been set before them, and notice when the person has something set before them, how it profoundly changes the way they talk about whatever it is they're enduring. Yeah, yeah, that's the flip right there that you're invited to, to see your life not as just an endless series of trials and difficulties and thorns that you just, I guess we'll just try to get through it, but to see it as what a wondrous thing to be here, to give ourselves to people, to give ourselves to places and to causes and to arts and to crafts and to sciences and to all of the different things, needs, missions, causes, yeah, or a joy set before us. Yeah, and then everything that happens, it's happening within that. Yeah, it's happening within that. Yeah, that 
which is set before you. So may you, my friends, uh, may these words, words like joy, love, desire, pleasure, may these not for you be shallow, suspicious words that you find yourself cynical about, like people who don't get how it really works, use words like that. But may these words be the kind of words that you use to find your way. Yeah, may you endure it. Uh, and whatever it comes your way, because you have fixed your eyes on the thing ahead of you. Yeah. May you come to see that you're not alone. That you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Yeah, we all are. Of course we're not alone. Yeah. We're doing what people have been doing for thousands of years. They've glimpsed something. They've lived by faith. They didn't see the whole thing. They just got enough to take the next step. And may grace and peace be with you as you take that next step.